Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? I saw the weird look on his face, the madness, the, the glazed over look. Okay. I saw it disappear. He just looked more like himself, and he said, what am I doing? Or what have I done? And I remember perfectly saying, I don't know, but I think you shot Dad. Because I heard my dad yelling, Charlie, don't do that, or Charlie, stop. And he said, oh, I did, or whatever. I said, I don't know, but get off of me so we can figure it out. Okay, and he did. He got off of me. My next step, I was trying to get out of the house. He goes, so you're not going to leave me, are you? Of course I said no. Sorry. No, I would run out the door. And I did. As soon as I thought he was far enough away, I ran. Have you ever seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yeah. I saw it once in my life. I could never watch it again. You know the girl screaming? Yeah. The way she ran screaming? That was me. I was just a little girl. I was running through the snow in my bloody nightgown towards screaming. And now, nearly two decades later, real-life versions of that actress from the horror flick continue to run, screaming through the night, not realizing that they're already dead, pursued by nothing except their own understanding bursting into fragments of light as they are illuminated by the cold moon, a lamp that exposes not only what they now are, but who he is, and what he's truly filleting, down by the water, in the dead of night. We will never know how many, but we do know this. Charlie Brandt had a signature, and that was to decapitate and surgically remove the hearts of his victims. It likely won't surprise this crowd, but I'm sure it would raise some eyebrows around most dinner tables if you shared that in the case of Charlie Brandt, investigators would later have to sift through the many unsolved crimes that ended with a woman's corpse being decapitated or had their heart removed and pick out the few files earmarked by both desecrations, then see if Charlie had been in town. Even after all this time, all these episodes I've done, it still amazes me that there are enough unsolved crimes out there that they can be placed into subgroups, where you have dozens of women decapitated, then over here dozens left heartless, and then another group that fits Brant's M.O. specifically by having both. Anything you can think of that may have happened to a person has happened. Go ahead, get real weird. Let your mind warp as much as you dare. Then Google it. I can near guarantee it has already happened. Scout, skewered, skinned. Sometimes I'll play these word games. Just throw it out there, the worst I can think of. The oddest, random shit, even. Then I'll Google with the word murder beside it. Potato, lampshade, robo. And it's always a thing. There's always a story. Charlie and his wife Terry loved to picnic. They often took their basket and blanket to the east end of Big Pine Channel Bridge a spot affectionately known as the Swimming Hole. It was a popular destination for locals, clearly visible to the road, not isolated or private, certainly not the type of setting one would imagine a horror unfolding upon, 
It felt safe here, by the pond. Cozy. Peaceful. Sherry Parishow certainly thought so, at least. Sherry was an interesting woman, a free spirit. She had been a beauty queen and valedictorian, then went on to university at Columbia, but had dropped out in search of enlightenment. She was technically homeless and lived in a rowboat, which she anchored near the swimming hole. She was, however, not a marginal figure. She was well known in the area, just an interesting character like many in the Keys. Not typical. Nobody was concerned for Sherry. They knew she lived this lifestyle by choice. If anything, many were jealous. On the evening of July 19, 1989, between 10 and 11 p.m., a local couple fishing off a bridge near the swimming hole snagged something large, and after a few tugs, Sherry's mutilated, submerged corpse floats to the surface. Her neck was slashed so deeply she had nearly been decapitated. The right carotid had been cleanly cut. The stomach had been sliced open from the pubis to the first rib, exposing the bowels. The heart is missing. Expertly removed after the aorta and the pulmonary artery were cleanly cut, these being the cables hooking into the heart. There was a large cut to the diaphragm, and part of the liver had been excised. Sherry's right nipple, cut off. The cause of death was determined to be exsanguination, blood loss and or drowning. Investigators soon locate Sherry's rowboat on an embankment and immediately notice scoring marks on the bottom of the boat. She had been butchered, out in the water perhaps. Her meager belongings were recovered from the bottom of the channel. There were fingerprints on the boat, but Brant's prints were not in the system, being that his only known crime had occurred as a youthful offender, and those records remained sealed. Police conducted a door-to-door search in the neighborhood, and, incredibly, stopped just a few doors shy of the Brant's house. Local police brought in a profiler, and she soon deduced that they were looking for a loner, a man incapable of maintaining relationships, of holding down a normal job, owning a vehicle, probably a psychotic and not sexually active. This was obviously a shot in the dark that did not land. It kept Charlie Brant off the radar, though at home he'd popped onto Terry's, his wife and she was concerned enough about what she'd seen him doing that she was considering calling her husband in, herself. Soon after Sherry's body is discovered, Jim, Charlie's best friend, who is now a working musician, scores a gig at a bar named Hammerheads in Key West and calls up his old friends Terry and Charlie to invite them to the show. They arrive, and when Jim comes over to say hi after his first set, Charlie is in the restroom. Terry, who appears to be very upset, takes the opportunity to tell Jim that she is thinking about calling the police and telling them about her concerns. She tells Jim that she had returned home early from work one recent evening and found Charlie in the fish cleaning room, covered in blood. But there had been no fish in the room, and soon after the body of a mutilated woman had been found in the canal a couple of blocks away. Jim advises Terry to let it go and not sabotage her marriage as he felt she was being paranoid. She takes his advice, and over the next few years, Charlie does not give her any more reason to believe he was up to anything nefarious. He maybe sensed her suspicion and adjusted accordingly. It won't be until the mid-90s that another body appears, showing the hallmarks of Charlie's handiwork. Thanksgiving Day, 1995. Darlene Toller, a mother of three who lived with her boyfriend, a cook, 
worked as a prostitute to support her crack addiction. She was an addict, but she still maintained a semblance of a stable life. She had a place to live, and she didn't leave her children without a sitter. Her boyfriend would watch them while she turned tricks out in Miami's Little Havana. She had people who loved her and depended on her. She went missing this night, and her body was discovered the next day. It was left inside a garbage bag, wrapped in a blanket. The blanket held the only evidence to really go on. Dog hair. Unnecessary surgery of some sort had been performed on Darlene's corpse, and her head had been removed. It was never found. The killer had also taken her heart. The cuts had been made with skill and accuracy, and the body dismembered without any nicks to bones or cartilage. When Charlie Brandt eventually becomes a suspect in these types of horrific crimes, investigators find he had kept careful records of his mileage. Charlie was meticulous about everything. Precise. Investigators would later find the entry in Charlie's mileage book for Thanksgiving of 1995, which showed a spike in mileage. Enough for Charlie to have driven from Big Pine Key to Miami's Little Havana, and back. However, the Brants did not own dogs. They had cats. This seemingly ruled out Charlie as Darlene's killer. Seemingly. Upon further investigations, police learned that Charlie, ever the helpful friend, had offered to take a friend's dog to the vet that week. DNA comparison proved the hairs on the blankets had come from the same dog. Darlene Toller was conclusively linked to Brant, but all too late. By then, Charlie was long gone, swept up by the storm. 2004. Hurricane Ivan looms over the Florida Keys. To understand what happened after Hurricane Ivan and why Charlie would choose this time to create his own aftermath, I first must tell you about Michelle Jones. Michelle Jones was Terry Brandt's niece. When Michelle was born in 1966, Bill, her dad, was away in Vietnam, and Terry helped Bill's wife, her sister, Mary Lou, with baby Michelle. When Terry went to college in Florida, she had lived with her sister and Michelle, who was then in fifth grade. Terry became a sort of surrogate mother figure. Michelle loved her Aunt Terry, who was a beautiful free spirit and lots of fun to be around. Her now Uncle Charlie was enamored by Michelle, and the two got along splendidly as well. Charlie referred to Michelle as Victoria's Secret, behind her back, and to his friends. Those friends who were later interviewed claimed they thought it was because she was classy and beautiful, just like a Victoria's Secret model. But later, another, much less innocent reason would be introduced. In 2004, Michelle, then 37, had grown up to be a very successful woman working in Orlando as a sales executive with the Golf Channel, and owned her own home in Altamonte. It was a large house, four bedroom, with a pool and a garden that she lived in alone. She had lots of close friends and was a girl's girl, as well as athletic and attractive. Her oldest and dearest friends were Debbie Knight and Peggy Ann Moore. They had been friends since high school. She met another close friend, Lisa Emmons, working at the Golf Channel. In 2004, Debbie, Peggy Ann, and Lisa were all married with kids, and all living in Orlando. Debbie and Lisa lived close to Michelle, and all three had spare keys to each other's houses. Peggy moved to D.C., but the friends made a pact to meet once a month, and she came back often. Michelle Jones was well-organized and ambitious from the start. She graduated early from high school, achieved a business degree, and built an impressive career for herself, working for the Golf Channel. The year of 2004 saw a summer of hurricanes. One of them was even named Charlie. But when Hurricane Ivan began to threaten Big Pine Key, 
Michelle insisted her aunt and uncle stay with her. Charlie and Terry had holed up with Michelle during a hurricane in 1999, and again in 2000, when the Brants were renovating their house. Michelle was an attentive hostess in both instances. She had breakfast with her guests before leaving for work and dinner after she came home. They drank wine together and enjoyed the amenities of her house. Little did Michelle know that her uncle had crossed a line on more than one occasion while she was at work and gone through her panty drawer, or at least this can be safely assumed, seeing as how she wore Victoria's Secret almost exclusively. Thursday, September 9th, 2004. Charlie has returned to work. His early retirement had become boring, so he's back running the blimp. Lately, he's been a little on edge, however. There's a rumor going around that employees are soon going to be forced to undergo in-depth background checks. He's been rather fidgety as a result and overly introverted, but he peps up during a discussion about Hurricane Ivan and its path. Charlie seems excited about the prospect of maybe having to evacuate and tells a colleague, quote, If this thing comes, I'm going to Victoria's Secret's house. The girl has it all. She's intelligent, has a good job, a good home, but she can't find a boyfriend. The last guy she had was divorced. Didn't even have a car. I just don't understand it. The way that Charlie speaks about Michelle is creepy. His co-workers will later admit that. But there are a lot of creepy guys out there. A lot of creepy uncles. So it doesn't raise any alarm bells. Friday, September 10th, 2004. Debbie Knight, Michelle's good friend, went over to Michelle's for drinks in the evening. And because Michelle insisted she did not drive home drunk, she slept over and stayed through Saturday. She then decided to stay for the weekend and enjoy the party that always came with Aunt Terry's arrival. Saturday, September 11th, 2004. It's confirmed that Hurricane Ivan is on its way. Terry and Charlie pack some clothes in their outback and drive to Altamonte. Michelle soon has a full house, a house full of laughter and good spirits. Charlie is thrilled to be surrounded by women and is sure to keep the drinks flowing for all. He is the last one up when the party finally tapers off, a sign of a uh, bit of a perv. The last guy up is always kind of thinking about something, kind of thinking there might be something that develops. <laughs> Watch out for the last guy up. That night at around 2 a.m., Debbie heads downstairs for a glass of water and finds Charlie's in the kitchen pacing in circles and muttering to himself. Initially, she smiles and tries to make small talk, but then the hairs on her neck stand up. She does not like the way Charlie has stopped pacing and is now standing near the knife rack, looking hungrily at her chest. There's a blank look in his eyes, and Debbie soon pours herself a glass of water and hastily retreats back up to bed. In the morning, Debbie tells Michelle about the run-in and lets her know that she thinks her Uncle Charlie is creepy. Michelle shrugged it off, but was not miffed when Debbie decided to cut bait and take an early exit. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 
25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Sunday, September 12th, 2004. After Debbie Knight becomes creeped out and leaves, Charlie is subtly adamant about seeing his father. So, in the early afternoon, Charlie and Terry head to Ormond Beach and have lunch with his father, Herbert, who now lives there. They spend the afternoon drinking and go over to younger sister Jessica's for dinner. While at dinner, Charlie becomes agitated. He's repeatedly saying he wants to go back to the Keys early, like right now, and to not stay at Michelle's any longer. He claims that he had never wanted to go to Michelle's, that this whole trip is silly. But Terry insists he stop being weird and at least stay one more night. It would be rude to just take off early like Debbie had. Angela, Charlie's older sister, was supposed to have come to dinner, but she claimed that she couldn't make it. She called Charlie to apologize and asked if they could meet on Monday instead. Charlie had flatly told her, quote, Sorry, Ange, I have plans. We're staying with Michelle. Angela, who we heard in the beginning of this episode, felt that his reply was ominous. She didn't like anyone to know this, but she was still terrified of Charlie, so terrified that she refused to run her air conditioner at night for fear of missing the sounds of her brother breaking into her home to gain revenge for her having run off that stormy night for help after he tried to kill them all. Before driving back to Michelle's, Charlie's father Herbert and sister Jessica are a little surprised when Charlie hugs them both. It's not that he never showed them affection, 
It's just that he's never shown it quite like this. He holds each of them tight and for a long period of time, as if he may never see them. Again. Monday, September 13th. Despite Charlie's earlier insistence that they depart immediately, and although Hurricane Ivan had passed into the Gulf of Mexico and no longer posed a danger to the Keys, the Brants are still at their niece's home. Michelle is likely ready for them to leave, and her Aunt Terry is now the one insisting they do so. But Charlie wants to stay. He insists. At least one more night. Maybe two. Tuesday, September 14th. Day four of the visit. Early in the evening, Michelle calls her close friend Lisa Emmons, who lives nearby. Lisa was supposed to come over to have dinner with Michelle, Terry, and Charlie that night. But she's running late and tells Michelle that she'll be right there. Michelle tells her not to bother coming over. She explains that, quote, Terry and Charlie have been drinking and arguing, and it isn't very pleasant around here. I'm just going to go to my room. Lisa considered going over anyhow, to maybe make things a little easier on Michelle. But in the end, she decided against it, and stayed home. Michelle's mother, who made a point of speaking to her daughter every day, became concerned when she could not get a hold of Michelle that night. Her cell phone went straight to voicemail. She could not reach her sister Terry either, so she eventually called Debbie Knight, who lived close to Michelle, and asked her to go check on her. Debbie agreed to go over, even though it was past midnight. She was also worried because she had been trying to contact Michelle without success. She and Michelle had been planning a girl's getaway to Las Vegas that weekend, and they'd been texting about it all week, until Michelle went silent. Because Debbie lived nearby and they were such good friends, she had a spare key. While driving over, she called up Lisa, who also lived near Michelle and had a spare key. Debbie filled her in, and they agreed to meet up at Michelle's. Lisa, of course, was looking back at her last interaction with her friend earlier that evening, and figured Michelle had just turned in early and shut off her phone. Still, something didn't feel right, and she was concerned enough to jump in her vehicle at this late hour to go and be sure. Debbie, meanwhile, was trying her best not to think about the look she'd seen on Uncle Charlie's face while getting a glass of water, trying not to think of his eyes and how they unabashedly drunk in her breasts, making her feel violated just by the look alone. The two women individually hustled to Michelle's home, each driving a little too fast and attempting to blow off the clouds of dread that were beginning to roll in. Debbie arrives first and sees that Charlie and Terry's outback is still parked in the driveway in front of the closed door of the garage. She's immediately concerned about an accident befalling her friend and the brands. Wild thoughts come to her. Smoke inhalation. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Maybe they got electrocuted in the pool or the hot tub. She's alarmed. Something is off. Something about the demeanor of the home doesn't feel right. The windows are too dark. Dark like the eyes of a recently satiated predator. Dark like the eyes of Uncle Charlie. She tries to enter the home but is too upset to get her key to work. In a panic, she begins banging on the door, calling for Michelle to open it, and then runs around to the other side of the house to bang on the living room windows. She's soon at the window of Michelle's bedroom, rapping on it as well, and trying to see inside. She is panicking. She does not know why she feels this way. It is two in the morning. They should be asleep. Lucky for her, she can't see anything through the window. Debbie is now convinced that something's wrong. She should be getting a reaction to her frantic knocking. She looks out to a sound on the street and spots a neighbor walking out to his car and runs to him, yelling for help. He tries to calm Debbie down, then with steadier hands attempts to turn the key in the front door lock, 
but also fails. He then walks around the house to look through the door of the garage. Debbie follows, and they soon come face to face with Charlie. His tongue protrudes at them. His eyes bulge. His skin is a furious shade of purple. But he's harmless. He's silent. He's attached to a noose and is hanging from the rafters of the garage. What Debbie missed by not being able to open the door, a door that was opened easily by investigators once they arrived with her key, was Terry Brandt's body lying on the blood-drenched sofa in the living room, stabbed ten times. One of the stab wounds went through the entire body and was so deep they initially thought it was two separate stab wounds. Terry was wearing a t-shirt and pajama bottoms, which had been pulled down to her ankles. Not really the way you'd think a loving husband would want his wife to be found. When Debbie had peered through Michelle's bedroom window, the shadows had obscured her friend's decapitated, mutilated corpse lying on her bed. The head was placed beside it, turned, as if to overlook the ruin of its body. The chest was cut open, and Michelle's heart had been cut out. This, too, was laid carefully beside the body, both breasts had been removed, with no nicks with bone or cartilage, and fish that is called a fillet. Her left leg was severed, also precisely, and with no damage to bone. It was lying on the comforter. The parts that had been removed had been cleaned of blood. Special care was taken with the head. A lying garbage can had been moved to the foot of the bed. Inside were Michelle's intestines, liver, and peritoneum, the membrane that covers the abdominal organs. There was not much blood on the bed, which showed that the mutilations occurred post-mortem. The autopsy revealed that the cause of death had been the sole wound inflicted while Michelle had been still alive, a deep stab wound to the heart. The autopsy also revealed that Charlie Brandt sodomized his niece Michelle Jones post-mortem. She was stabbed while wearing a tank top, which was found in the bathroom sink. It had a vertical cut through the middle. This led profiler Leslie D'Ambrosia to speculate that Michelle was attacked by surprise in the bathroom, which is reminiscent of what Charlie did to his parents in 71. D'Ambrosia suggested, based on the evidence, that Charlie killed Terry first. Given that she only had a few defensive cuts on her left arm, she may have been sleeping on the couch. Charlie basically got his wife out of the way, then ripped her pants down for kicks. Michelle had been preparing to take a bath when Charlie burst in and plunged a knife into her chest. Michelle's Victoria's Secret lingerie had been strewn all about. Several pairs had the sides slit, likely to allow Charlie, who was much larger, to put them on. There were four blood-stained towels on the floor, which he used to clean up the severed organs after he removed them from his victim, examined them, then placed them neatly on the bed beside the splayed open corpse. Charlie's blood-stained clothes were found in a heap, He'd showered and put on fresh, clean clothes before hanging himself in the garage. He was sure to look presentable in death, after he'd taken so much care getting his wife and niece ready for the cameras of the CSI. This was Charlie's big finale, an ultimate fantasy that he'd been piecing together for years, a fantasy that he even tried to fight off, but found it was too strong in the end for him to ignore. You'll recall that he wanted to go home was adamant about not staying any longer at Michelle's after Debbie had found him pacing in the kitchen, eyes black and mouth muttering creepy nonsense. But his dark side had won, evidently. Maybe he felt he'd had a good run, felt that they were maybe going to expose him at work somehow with the background checks, felt that his luck was running out. 
Rather than continue snagging smaller fish, he wanted to go for the big one. The way he'd fished for victims before landing, his Victoria's Secret, might lead us to believe that Charlie picked women or young girls at random. But this may not have been the case, because we now know that Charlie enjoyed stalking. Lisa Emmons, Michelle's friend who likely avoided being murdered herself when Michelle told her not to bother coming for dinner, recalled being at a party by a lake with Charlie, Terry, and Michelle when she decided to slip away for a bit and take a swim. When she'd finished, Lisa stepped out of the lake and onto the bank and noticed a man hiding in the reeds, watching her. It was Uncle Charlie. His eyes glazed over. She asked, Charlie, what are you doing here? And he did not reply. He simply slipped back into the cover, like an alligator. Debbie Knight and Lisa Emmons both easily could have been in the house on the night of the murders. Charlie likely suggested it, that Michelle invite her friends over. And Michelle probably spared them, at least Lisa, with her instinct not to have her over for dinner. We know that Charlie planned to go out in style, so to speak, that night. He decided he was going to have to kill himself that this would be the price he'd pay in exchange for allowing himself the pleasure of murdering his niece. Terry would be a formality. They hadn't been getting along so well lately anyways. The idea that she and Lisa may have been a part of Charlie's ultimate fantasy haunted Debbie Knight. After the murders, she withdrew from society and became isolated from her family. She was very depressed and fearful. She barely left the house and had trouble letting her kids leave the house to go to school. She started seeing things likely as a result of PTSD. She doesn't describe exactly what she saw because, as she says, she's afraid to call the visions back by dwelling on them. However, reading between the lines, it seems she felt Charlie's shadowy presence lurking about her from time to time, maybe even witnessed it. She was also beset with visions of violence, flashes of horror that seemed to play in her mind's eye without her permission, from a place beyond her imagination, a place that used her mind as a reel upon which a dark entity would from time to time fix some depraved film. Charlie was a huge fan of horror movies, not to mention torture porn, snuff films. Debbie was living in constant fear, convinced that the spirit of Charlie Brandt was terrorizing her, attached to her somehow from the moment they locked bugged eyes at the garage window. When she begins hearing footsteps on the stairs and approaching her bed at night, she decides to seek professional help. So Debbie... Terrified and convinced she was being haunted by Charlie Brandt, the man who is as close as it gets to a real-life horror villain, enlists the help of a celebrity medium. Witnesses to the psychic intervention and cleansing of Debbie's home claim that the psychic engaged in quite a battle with who they all believe to be the ghost of Charlie Brandt, with all the cupboards in the house opening and closing and the place shaking. No video, unfortunately. The take-home messages from the conversation this medium supposedly had with Charlie's ghost was that he had planned to murder Debbie and Michelle both, and that he had Michelle's soul somehow chained to the fear and anger of her death, so she could not move on. The medium, before collecting her check, claims to have freed Michelle's soul and banished Charlie from Debbie's home. Debbie Knight, as a result, is able to move on. This psychic medium, Rosemary, tell me what I want to hear, Altea, is a little suspect, to say the least. She was actually featured on the premiere episode of Penn & Teller's series, Bullshit. Spoiler alert, she's the bullshit. But sometimes dumb confidence can be of value. Sometimes just believing, just putting faith into something we don't understand, can make everything okay. Like a kiss from mummy on a boo-boo. 
All better, dare, dare, little one. I remember my dad used to tell us whenever the subject of death came up, you ain't never going to grow old, and you ain't never going to die. And boom, we'd be back laughing about farts or something. Sure, these mediums are almost all charlatans, but they're doing good work for the most part. Their money's earned. It's no different than what religion basically does, though with a cleaner transaction. I'm jealous of Debbie, because though she knows better than most what evil is out there, she now feels protected. But for me, and I'm sure it's true for you too, we continue to keep our guard up. We look at nice people as manipulators, at quiet ones as ticking time bombs. We see a fishing hole as a body dump, an old home as a head full of dark secrets that run through it like nightmares. I believe in ghosts. I believe in evil. I believe it grabs the willing, makes use of them in life, then owns them in death. I believe Charlie Brandt's still out there, or whatever was in him at least. And I believe the only way to keep that darkness at bay is to be certain it's not there. That it's just your mind playing tricks. Or that if it is there, that a prayer or a pastor or a player can defeat it with words. It sure would be nice to be that gullible. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Dark Topic.